Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Maya May, comedian and host of LPTV's We're Speaking, which is back for a brand new season this week. Maya, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back, Reed. Absolutely. And everybody just remember that if you can't catch any of our LPTV shows live, you can always find them on our YouTube channel. I hope you'll tune in. So, Maya, we did this a couple of months ago, and I think we had a pretty good time doing it, which is taking questions from our listeners out there and getting some of our unvarnished feedback, although we don't put a lot of varnish on anything, I guess, to begin with. But just wanted to hear from listeners and fellow members of the Lincoln Project community. So Rob and the production crew have taken questions from social media, emails, town halls. And remember, anytime you ask a question, you could hear it on a show like this. So, Maya, if you are ready, let's get into it. Yeah, let's do it. All right. So let's get our first question. This comes from Kathy. Despite past history, is it possible for Democrats to keep control and increase numbers of Congress? What is the best thing I can do as an individual to ensure Democratic congressional control in 2022? Well, I will say this is that, yeah, history is not on our side when it comes to this. Only three times in the last 120 or so years has a president in their first term has that president's party picked up seats. The last time was 2002 with George W. Bush. That was, remember, though, about a year after 9-11. So Republicans and Stewart and Rick were involved in that campaign, talked about national security, that this was a matter of making sure that you know the American people were safe. And so, Maya, I think not unlike what Republicans did then, we will need to nationalize this election, frankly, against a threat. And that threat is the Republican Party and what it will do if it takes control of the U.S. House or the U.S. Senate. Yeah, I agree. Pointing to what's happening in Texas and Florida and saying, hey, this is not how we want to end up is key. But I also think what's interesting is about right now is I feel like we're in an anything goes kind of situation. It's not like the coin flip thing where it's like it's always 50-50, where it, whether it's heads or tails. Right now, the climate has shifted. So it's like what went in the past isn't necessarily going to predict what's happening right now. And so I think the best thing people can do is to stay incredibly engaged on all levels. And that means having conversations and not shying away from those tough conversations with their friends and family members who may be on the fence about whether it's even important to get out and vote and keep having those conversations all the way through the midterms so that we're not in a tough situation. Right. And, you know, so much of what we're seeing going on right now in Washington, D.C. is focused on President Biden's agenda, what's going on with these very arcane budgetary maneuvers called reconciliation, the infrastructure bill all of these other things, you know, Democrats are really good at making things harder for themselves. And they're doing that once again, unfortunately. But remember that, you know, we're a year away from the elections. I mean, a year from now, people will be voting. But before we get too 
down in the mouth about things, we should remember that the Republicans have plenty of their own stuff to worry about that I know that we at the Lincoln Project and many of our allies will be talking about. First and foremost is COVID. The Republican Party is going to be responsible for that. Donald Trump was responsible for it last year, and Republican governors, members of Congress, media outlets have consistently pushed either an anti-vax vibe, continued this fiction that it is not that big a deal, or put in places like you mentioned in Texas and Florida, these, you know, banning mask mandates in schools and going crazy when someone says, well, we're a business and we want to make sure people get vaccinated, which is directly contrary to public health and frankly, common sense. That's one. Second is January 6th. The January 6th Select Committee will be back in session before long. Kevin McCarthy and Marjorie Taylor Greene just judging from their reactions when they heard that, you know, the committee may subpoena, you know, their phone records went crazy. Absolutely crazy. They know this is bad for them. They don't want to talk about it, but certainly, you know, we're not going to let them off the hook. I think three is if you go back and you look at the 2020 candidates, and this is something, a point that Stewart made when we were talking the other day, is whether or not you believed that Republicans running for, let's say, the U.S. Senate were good or bad for the country, they weren't nearly as loathsome individually as Donald Trump is. He is a loathsome creature. You may not like a lot of these Republicans, and certainly I disagree with them on just about everything at this point, but they didn't display this open ugliness like Trump did. Republican candidates do now. A lot of these people are running in competitive primaries. I point to J.D. Vance or Josh Mandel, who are running in the Ohio Senate primary. The guy who's running in the, I think, Pennsylvania governor's race is a Republican, you know, who basically said women without a man, you know, have empty lives or some crazy shit like that. Eric Greitens, who's running for U.S. Senate in Missouri as a Republican, member is a basically disgraced former Navy SEAL and a disgraced former governor was run out of office after he tied up his girlfriend in the basement and took pictures of her. Like, these are bad freaking human beings. And then lastly is the orange albatross, as I've started calling him, which is Donald Trump is not going to go away. It would not surprise me if he decides to run for president next year, if he decides to announce that he's rerunning for president next year, because that would be the perfect thing for him to do in a situation where the country is all pointed towards something else and someone else, i.e. the future, that he would want to make sure that he dives right back into the middle of the American political swimming pool. And so Republicans are not by any means going to make this easier on themselves because they have backed themselves so far into a corner based on appealing to the craziest of their base voters, which means that they're going to turn off a lot of independents and whatever Democrats might be annoyed with their own party, they're certainly not crossing the line this year. Yeah, I think with Trump or the orange albatross, I like that, as you put that, it's interesting because he says he might run again. And at the same time, he's basically saying he's still the legitimate president. So I'm like, do you need to run again if you're already the president in this sort of shadow world that you've created for yourself? But I love the points that you bring up because they're all about really, truly visceral reactions to what's happening. You know, January 6th, what we all saw, the footage, which is going to come back, is visceral. COVID deaths are visceral. And so those are going to be the kind of errors that like when you're watching a tennis game and you're like, ah, how are they going to win this one? They're just like messing it up left and right. And so I think that right there is what the Democrats need to leverage and need to attack on. And I'm a little concerned that they're not, but that's where we come in, right? Well, yeah. And, you know, there's that serenity prayer, right? God grant me the wisdom to know what I can control and what I can't and to know the difference. 
that's the position I've taken on our friends in the Democratic Party, which is they're going to do the best they can. Our job is to go out and hold bad guys accountable. And so I think we're pretty good at that. I think you see it in Texas with what we're doing. You will start to see a lot from us in the coming days in Virginia with Glenn Youngkin, who's running for governor as a Republican, who's trying desperately to be all things to all people. And we're certainly not going to let him get away with that. No, absolutely not. We got to be louder than the bad guys. Right. Always be louder than the bad guys. All right. Jennifer asks, are there any actions besides donating that we can be doing right now to prepare for the 2022 elections? And Kathy asked this, too. What's the best thing I can do to ensure Democratic control? And so I would say this is that there are plenty of organizations in whatever state you live in that you can get involved with. If that is your local Democratic Party, if that's what you're into, if not, you know, there are plenty of local organizations dedicated to voter turnout, to voter registration. Look, signing up to be an election judge or an election observer. These are things that may not seem particularly important, particularly sexy. But I'll tell you this is that there are going to be a lot of Republicans who are signing up to do this stuff in the coming months. And there's a lot of Republican states now or Republican controlled legislatures that are making it easier for Republican election observers to sort of do whatever they want. So I think that everything from, again, registering voters to actually getting involved in the process, I think is going to be a hugely important thing. I would also say that we have a Facebook group in most major states. I think, Rob, if we can put the link to our LP Facebook groups in the description of this episode, we'll do that. And you can always email us info at lincolnproject.us about how you can help and where we're playing. We're going to play in a lot of places next year, guys. And certainly we're going to need every single one of you. Yeah. And I would like to add to not allow the craziness to distract you. The GOP is trying to diffuse our energy so that by the time the elections roll around, we're going, oh, wait, am I registered? Am I this? Am I that? Do not allow that to happen. Stay laser focused right now. Eyes on the prize. That's the moment for this. And know that you got to register, get out there, vote, be a part of those electoral boards. All of that. So important. All right. Our next question comes from Douglas Friday. What questions should we be asking prospective Republican candidates in town halls so that their sanity or craziness can be used for or against them? I would say this just if they're a sitting member of Congress, Republican member of Congress, they will be doing everything they can to avoid any sort of public event. If they're running either in a primary or running, you know, for the first time in a potentially open seat, you're going to have lots of opportunities. I think for me, the question is, do you believe Joe Biden won the 2020 election or do you believe Donald Trump won the 2020 election? To me, this is going to be the threshold question because it determines whether or not that candidate lives in reality or lives in the la-la land that is Donald Trump and Magaville. Most of them will not want to answer that question unless they're in a very conservative area because they know that it immediately pushes them outside the bounds of reality with a lot of voters that they're going to need to capture. I would also say, do they believe in vaccines? Do they believe that everyone should be vaccinated? Do they believe in mask mandates? Do they believe in masking in schools? If they start going off like Glenn Youngkin did where he's hopping in, you know, blah, 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 blah. You know, you can tell these are questions they don't want to answer. Ask questions of them that they know there's no good answer to. Yeah. And I would love to know how they feel about a multiracial democracy. Push them to answer that question. I just want to see them stutter through an answer on that as they're like, I, uh, what? <laughs> All right. Our next question comes from Robert, who asks, 
What are some winning candidate qualities that Democrats or independents need to have and promote in 2022 and 2024? Well, I'll say this as the former Republican on the program. Even though we are as polarized as a country as we've been in maybe 150 years, most American voters still live somewhere in a pretty narrow band in the middle, center, center right, center left. They're probably not self-described as moderates. They're certainly not self-described as centrists, but their opinions on things probably move in a pretty rational manner back and forth on things. They're probably primarily concerned with the economy, with the pandemic, and some sense of returning to normality. I think you also want people who are going to represent their district. You can be a Democrat who is a proud Democrat, believes in protecting the environment, believes in union representation and all those other things. That is not hyper progressive. Sometimes folks don't like to remember this. In 2018, it was the moderate Democrats that helped them take the House. In 2022, it will probably be the same because those progressive districts are already occupied by Democrats. So it's going to have to be those moderate seats that flip from red to blue like they did three years ago, I guess. And I think the willingness to listen and to have a backbone at the same time, I think there's a huge difference between being able to like listen without judgment and listening and immediately looking for how to attack back on that. And so I think any Democrat or independent that can hear both sides, and I'm not saying like in a both sideism sort of way, I'm saying, hey, like if people have something they want to say and it may contradict everything that you think and feel, you're not going to win that argument. You're not going to win that person over by trying to shout them down, by trying to make them feel like they're speaking in a way that's unreasonable. It's just listening. A lot of people right now are feeling like they're not heard, and that's why Trump is able to get them over to his side. You know, all of his emails, I care, I care about you. Joe Biden doesn't care about you, friend. And that makes it so much easier for him to pull those people over to his side. And so I think the thing needs to be, we don't necessarily need to agree, but we do need to be able to listen. I agree. And I'll take the flip side of that too, which is Democrats are famous for taking the bait on culture war issues. It doesn't matter what it is. Republicans roll a metaphorical grenade across the floor. Democrats pick it up. They look at it. They try and explain how a grenade works, and then it blows up on them, again, all metaphorically. If a Republican candidate comes after a Democratic candidate with something, it could be the Green New Deal, it could be critical race theory, whatever it is, the Democratic candidate has to go back at them directly and be like, you know, when you say CRT, what you're really trying to do is scare white people and make them scared of black people. That's what you're doing. So my question is, like, are you scared of black people? Are you a racist? Because that's not a great campaign theme. Vote for John Smith. I'm not a racist. Like, bad place to start, right? And that's where Democrats need to stop worrying so much and learn to love the bomb. Like, this is what you're going to have to do. I think the other thing, too, and this is something Stewart said, in this time, Democrats are in the right. They are the only Democratic Party left in the country. Republicans are in the wrong. You should say, we are right. We believe in serving the people, and we believe in a, as you said, a multi-ethnic, vibrant, diverse democracy that takes into account all voices, those that have been heard forever and those who are just now starting to be heard. It's weird, Maya, that Democrats sometimes they have a, and I say this with all the love in the world, all of this stuff, right? These are critiques, not criticism. There's all, often an intellectual piece of this that can come off as sort of a little like looking down the nose piece. 
but they need to take that and move it to the emotional piece. If it's in Texas, you know, it's not just that SB8 is scientifically ridiculous because I have two kids and my wife didn't know she was pregnant at six weeks either time, but it's fundamentally un-American to try and control someone's life that much, especially for the party of individual liberty. And also it's fundamentally un-American to make vigilantism state-sponsored. And like you should say that, like you are a bad person for supporting this. You are bad for the country. You're bad for your citizens. If this were your daughter, what would you do for a law that does not have exceptions for rape and incest, right? Republicans have gone down the dark side. I'm not talking like Darth Vader, there's a little bit of light left. I'm talking full Palpatine here. They are on the dark side of the argument here, and Democrats should not be afraid to say so. But I think the reason that they're able to go down the dark side and embrace the dark side and pull other people onto the dark side is because those people feel like they're not heard. So when I say listen to them, I'm not saying listen to them and go, yeah, you have valid points. That's not what I talk about with empathetic listening. And this is partly because I'm reading this book and I've been reading it for like the last couple of months. And it's all about how to persuade people when facts don't matter. And as I'm reading it and I'm actually being triggered as I'm reading it because I'm like, oh, because you do. You just want to kind of scream in someone's face and be like, you are just a bad racist person. <laughs> and that is not what is going to get us to where we want to be as a country. Right. And so. Part of it is being able to have a nuanced enough conversation with somebody that you can hear past what they're saying. So you can hear past it and listen to the subtext and say, okay, this person right now is afraid of the fact that, oh, immigrants are going to come into their town and take away their job and they're already struggling. So that's this person using fear and it's coming out in anger. And then it's trying to work with them in that way, because otherwise it really does just become a you're a bad person. You're a bad person. It's just like we just bad person our way all the way up. And really, they're just like, I'm hurting like this to me is a big like hurt people, hurt people situation in this country. And I'm like, we have to get beyond that. And unfortunately, I think it's it is on the people who are marginalized in a way who have understood how to work through that to say, OK, I actually know how to listen. I hate the bigger picture thing, like or the bigger person thing, but it is kind of like be the bigger person. Well, Maya, that's why you and I are together, because you are the bigger person here. So <laughs> thank God one of us is. All right. Moving on here. At MME Science on Twitter asks, how can we wake the Democrats in Congress up so they'll stop fighting each other and pass stuff? Being a Democrat is worse than being a Mets fan. I mean, look, I think, as I said earlier, and like this happened with Republicans, it happens with Democrats, which is. Everybody tries to get everything they can done in the off year right after a presidential election because they see that is like once the election season starts, forget about getting anything big done. So it always puts an unrealistic strain and stress on a governing system that frankly isn't working that well anyway. And so I think that from my perspective, from our perspective, the Lincoln Project is you have to get out of this idea that you think that you're in a normal time that this is normal legislative action, that the things that you do are somehow going to continue in 2023 with a Republican Congress or in 2025 with a Republican in the White House or whatever. Like, I would have loved for them to have taken up voting rights in the spring as they were seeing all this stuff come down in states that only federal action at this point can change or can cut off. But now here we are 
it's the end of September. Now we've got a debt ceiling thing. Now we've got a budget thing. Now we've got a looming government shutdown. Now we've got three and a half trillion dollars in spending and an infrastructure bill, all these things. And they're all big. They're all enormous in their own right. And rather than saying, let's do the first things first, they're saying, let's do everything all at once. And there's only so much. Again, I don't know that it could have mattered. I mean, especially with a 50-50 Senate and filibusters and without anybody willing to say, you know what, Mitch McConnell takes over in two years, like filibuster, bye bye. You know, if it's even Mitch McConnell, if it's somebody else, if it's somebody screwier than here, they will gut the filibuster on day one. It'll be gone. And so this is what I'm talking about. Like the normal rules of the game are suspended indefinitely. And I hope that our friends inside the Beltway start to understand that. Yeah, I'm hoping people are coming out of shock because I think a large part of the inaction is almost like shock over, wow, we really had no idea it could get this bad. January 6th happened and everyone's like, whoa, like this is where we're at as a country. And so I think as people are coming out of that and we're still not out of the pandemic, I think this is now giving people reason to get active and get engaged. And also, I think part of it is it's not necessarily fighting each other as much as it is trying to decide what priorities are. And this is where I actually, and I love that the question was from somebody who has science in their handle. This is where I feel like we do need to leverage tech and science to figure out what our priorities are and leverage technology to be able to make better, smarter decisions around what is actually going to activate people. Because right now it's basically, it's so crude. It's like we have like a bunch of stuff on the burner, like a six burner stove. And, you know, you got something burning on the left burner and the right and you're trying to figure it all out as opposed to leveraging technology and figuring out, oh, you know what? Everybody's going to be on board with this piece of things. So we're going to seize that and use that as our talking point. We're going to use that in order to get people out to vote. And we're going to stay away from this thing that people maybe are a little iffy, iffy on. And I feel like only tech is going to help us get to that space. And I, I'm a little disappointed that we're not leveraging it in the way that we could be. Well, as we look back on this time, I will probably call it the era of things we didn't leverage. All right, Maya, here's one I want you to answer. From Carmen Christie, how do Democrats plan to, quote, widen the tent to, quote, Senator Amy Klobuchar during the 2020 campaign to those who are pro-life? This is the issue driving many voters into the cesspool that is the Republican Party. I have very good friends who voted for Trump for this very reason. People who are liberal in many things except this. And this is such a tough question because it is so personal for so many people and for religious people, for spiritual people, can very much feel like an unborn life trumps all else, right? And so trying to have an academic debate about that is not really going to get you anywhere because it is a question of someone's faith. I think here is where we actually have to lean into what the purpose of our government is in that we do, in fact, have a separation of church and state. And it is not about pro-life. It's about choice and bodily autonomy and whether or not half of our population can have control over their own bodies. And so I think we need to shift what the conversation is about because it's devolved into a you're killing babies kind of conversation. And you can't really win that conversation and you can't bring people in to the fold into any kind of tent if that's the conversation we're having. Well, also, I mean, 
a few weeks back, I had historian H.W. Brands on the show. You know, his last book was about the lead up to the Civil War. And I said, you know, I'm sure you get this a lot. Do you think we're in for a new Civil War? And he said, I don't think so. I think the only issue that I can see that has the ability to divide people that definitively is abortion. We literally taped that like 10 days before the abortion law in Texas took effect. And now we're starting to see what's happening, which is, you know, it's already unpopular. There are provisions in it, again, we're talking about rape and incest that it, it does not allow for. We're already seeing stories out of places like Oklahoma and Arkansas and as far as Kansas about women who are fleeing the state. We've seen companies like Salesforce and its CEO, Mark Benioff, that says, if you work for Salesforce and you don't want to live in Texas anymore, we'll pay your moving expenses. I was on the phone with someone earlier today in Texas who said it's going to be harder and harder for tech companies. And Texas has a big tech component now, to your point, Maya, where, you know, a lot of the employees are young. They're far more progressive on social issues. Maybe they're different on economic issues, but they're far more progressive on social issues. And they're sort of like, I don't think I want to move to a state where like this is the law. And tech recruiting, as you know, is a big business right now. They need more bodies and more smart people and not even college educated people, just folks that know how tech works. And if those companies in Texas can't get those bodies, then somebody else someplace else is going to. Yeah, my mom is a tech recruiter, actually, and had been for decades. And she said right now it's insane. It's impossible to fill positions. And I think this is interesting because we're looking at what could possibly be a brain drain for states like Texas and Florida where people flee. And that can't be good for the state as a whole. So you would think that that part of things would get the GOP to a level of understanding that this is not a long term strategy. Like, it's a short-term strategy. It's going to get their base active in voting. But eventually, at the end of the day, if they're losing part of their population, part of their educated population, then that state is going to suffer. And people are going to eventually, when they feel it in their pockets, that's when the GOP is going to distance themselves even further from what it means to be a party of independence and a party Well, of remember, they were supposed to be the pro-business party, right? But now it's the pro whatever crazy ass thing the craziest person in the party believes in, that's what we're going to run to. Yeah, I don't think we talk about that enough. I mean, it's crazy to me that we're now in a time where corporate America is on the right side of history, leading in many ways in that our politicians are not. And that's huge. Like they're coming out and saying our workforce requires diversity. Our workforce needs inclusion. And so therefore, we're going to be on that end of it. And I think the Republicans are kind of running out of things to run on. Well, and I mean, to that end, I mean, I will say this, that I will not give them as much credit as you will, specifically because a lot of the stuff you're talking about is true, but that is based not in the corporate hierarchy or the C-suite or the board, but as I noted from the employee base, a lot of the executives want nothing to do with any of this stuff. They just want to keep making monies hit their quarterly numbers, get their bonuses, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, when it comes to Texas, you know, like AT&T, huge company based in Dallas, doesn't say anything about SB8, doesn't say anything about SB1, you know, that made Texas even more difficult to vote in. Texas is now the 50th most difficult state to vote in. And most of these companies just want it to go by. We're not going to let them get off of that easy. But that also means that, you know, when we say, you know, you got to hold these people to account, we actually need that to happen. Corporate America, far too often, much like the national media, still thinks this is all transactional. It doesn't matter that Mitch McConnell told him to sit down and shut up, but keep giving me money. 
It doesn't matter that Ted Cruz says, we're going to come after you for all the things we don't like. It doesn't matter that Marco Rubio and Rick Scott from Florida basically said, if we have to pass legislation that lets us decide what you as a corporation can and can't say in the public sphere, whether or not it's Kevin McCarthy and Marjorie Taylor Greene saying, if you give up our phone records, we're going to shut you down. Those should all be massive red flags to corporate America ever wanting Republicans to be in charge of anything for the near future. But yet they're like, oh, it won't be that bad. It won't be that bad. Like it will be. And it already is. I mean, I guess my I'd rather be the screaming Cassandra than the person who sits there quietly. Right. Well, and I think it's important to highlight all of that because it is true. Like this is now a situation where companies are being threatened by politicians outwardly and in the open. So I can only imagine what is happening behind the scenes. And we can't get to a place where that is our reality. And it is our reality, but we can't allow it to normalize, which is what's happening. Well, and as history has taught us, too, it's always the people who sit in the glittering glass towers that say, oh, if those idiots get elected, we can control them. You can't. Ted Cruz doesn't need your money. Marjorie Taylor Greene doesn't need your money. Josh Hawley doesn't need your money. They don't need your $5,000 pack check. They don't need it, right? It's a different world. Now, that might not be true for rank and file members. But for the people who make the most noise and are the most threatening, they're the ones raising small dollar money hand over fist. They don't need your money anymore. And I think that's something that they really have not put into their calculus. But again, you know, it's the whole let's just ignore this and it'll go away. Right. Yeah. OK, so the next question comes from Todd Fortune. How concerned are you about the Republican ticket in Virginia for this year's statewide elections and their chances of winning? Well, Todd, I got to be honest with you. We weren't really even thinking about it. Then a bunch of us were on the East Coast in Washington, D.C. last week, and people were starting to flip out. It's much closer. Cook Political Report, which is a very well-respected political media outlet that judges these things, moved it from lean Democrat to toss-up. You know, I spent two days in the D.C. market watching just terrible frickin' commercials, just one after the other on local news. And, you know, Virginia was plus nine for Biden, so Terry McAuliffe has the advantage. But Glenn Youngkin, the Republican nominee, is trying to be all things to all people. He ran in the primary as a pro-Trump guy. He's an investment banker from Carlisle, the Carlisle Group, which is a big D.C.-based investment house. And now he wants to be more Mitt Romney than Donald Trump. The problem is, is that if he's Donald Trump, the Northern Virginia suburbs, where there are most of the massive voters in the state are, will run for the hills. If he goes Mitt Romney, then all those deep red Western Virginia, Southwestern Virginia, Southeastern Virginia MAGA voters will just stay home. Because remember, they don't care. To them, a rhino, a Republican in name only, is worse than a Democrat. That's the psychology of it. So we'll be in that race in coming days and we'll be there till the end because Glenn Youngkin is exactly the kind of guy who could take Trumpism, as Rick likes to say, put it through the car wash and make it a lot more palatable to individual voters than it really is. And I think, you know, him being on the record of saying crazy things, I think is super important that people actually hear these things over and over again and that they're held to account for that. Because the more that's heard, I think, across the board, it's like what's happening in Virginia. It used to be it would just affect Virginia. I think it's really important for people across the country to be paying attention to what's happening in Virginia and so that we can go, oh, not that as well. Like, not Republican there, not Republican here, no Republican anywhere. 
That's right. I mean, I think that, you know, Yunkin, there was a debate with he and McAuliffe, I guess it'll be last night as we're taping this, when he got asked about vaccines and the first five seconds of his answer was, uh, 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 um, you know, he did say that the 2020 election was freely and fairly decided, and that was a settled issue. You know, remember, too, that this is one of those things where, like I call him the old orange albatross, comes back into play. Trump has actively been trying to get this guy, Yunkin, to come closer to him and say, if you don't come closer to me, you can't win. And that's the problem for this guy, is that he's screwed if he doesn't, screwed if he doesn't, rather than trying to win the primary as a sort of establishment, moderate, old-line Republican, which he probably couldn't have done. He did what he had to do in the primary. The difference is now is that where people used to run to the right or the left in the primary and come back to the middle, now you have to basically make a right turn in the primary and try and make a 180-degree turn to come back. We're going to do everything we can to make sure that you know he gets to go back to his mansion in Great Falls and not to the governor's mansion in Richmond. All right. Next question is from Joe. Joe says, I'm a lifetime Republican, former staff man, party official, and multi-county elected official. I am being ostracized by my local GOP as, quote, a rhino because of my outspoken criticism of Trump. There is no reasoning with these people. What is the best way to deal with the good people who are blindly devoted to the man who hijacked my party and ran it and the country off a cliff? All right. Well, Maya, you are reading how to talk to people that are impossible to talk to. So I'm going to let you take that first and then I'll give you my perspective on Joe's question. One, I think it's great that he's asking the question and that he's calling them good people. I think that's important to understand that not necessarily everybody involved in these kind of situations is a horrible person. Sometimes people are susceptible to being pulled into a platform that might not necessarily represent their values. And so this to me is a value question. You have to have a conversation, an honest conversation with those good people in your life and say, hey, this isn't a conversation about politics right now. This is a conversation about values. What do you value? And actually try to hear that. Try to hear, like, what do you value? You want your kids to feel safe at school or you want your kids to not get sick at school? Because that's where the common ground can be, I think, is if we can identify what those values are, and most of them tend to be around safety and protecting our families. I mean, that, at the end of the day, that is the kind of like the root question that drives most of us. So I think starting there. I mean, I guess the other part, too, is, you know, this is going to be a little bit more direct and maybe a little bit more confrontational, but asking your former colleagues, why do you even want to do this? Remember that politics is a means to an end. It's a service. Once it becomes simply about attaining and retaining power, well, then it's just a gang. So like you're a Republican Central Committee member, you're a Republican county chairman, like your ostensible job is to get Republicans elected. I get that. But to what end? So the Democrats aren't in charge because, you know, they're communists or socialists or whatever crazy ass thing it is you're going to call them. Like ask them like what it is they want to do. I mean, do they believe in service? Do they believe that they do this because they represent people who want a better life, to your point. And I think that it's hard. If you go into a focus group today, I would venture to say that if you put up a picture of Nancy Pelosi, you'd get a lot of jeers. But if you put up a picture of Mitch McConnell in a Republican focus group, people would throw things at the screen. It's just a different thing. Like they hate him with the passion of a thousand sons. They think he's an operator. He is. They think he's transactional. He is. They think he's not a true believer. He isn't. 
but they can't get rid of him. And I think that's why you saw, was it last week or the week before, Trump was even calling senators saying you should toss him overboard, which of course none of them would, or none of them are, I should say at the moment. All right, last question. We saved the biggest question for last. Bill asks, how can our nation heal from political polarization so that the democratic experiment of government in this amazing country can become more effective and productive for all? I'm going to let you answer that one first. I wish everybody thought like you, Bill Pagels, out there, because this is the question of the day. We have to get beyond the fighting and asking, how do we heal? And at the end of the day, I think we have to think about the end game. Like, what's the end game? Because at the end of the day, we are literally all a part of the same country. So this idea of having a civil war that some people seem to want to have, this idea of being able to divvy up the nation and say, like, you take this state, I'll take that state. At the end of the day, we need to be competitive on the global field. And in order to do so, in order to make sure that, you know, our infrastructure is up to par, that our education is up to par, all of those things, we have to come together. And so I think it comes down to looking at everybody going, hey, we might not like everybody on our team, right? Like if this is a basketball game and we're trying to go for the championship, everybody has their part to play. We may not like them. I'm thinking back to like the Detroit Pistons when like you had like Rodman and like maybe not necessarily getting along with Bill Lambeer and all their teammates. But at the end of the day, they want to win championships. And so we have to decide as a country, like, do we truly actually want to come together and win? Because if we don't, we lose. Your point there, I think, is hugely important, which is on that team of individuals who may not get along personally, there was a common goal. For most of living memory, there was a common perspective on what the country was, what truth was, and what the national discussion was. And now we don't have that. And as Anne Applebaum says in her book, Twilight of Democracy, this is a key indicator of a democracy in trouble. When you have the population pretty roughly divided between what is one version of truth and what is another, it's almost impossible to get to a place where you can have a rational discussion about anything related to the greater good because people on opposite sides are oppositional for the sake of being that. So I take it a little bit different, which is Maya's piece is right. We must all come together or we must come together around a common goal, a common objective, a common truth. Unfortunately, I believe, and this is why the Lincoln Project exists, that until and unless the Republican Party suffers significant electoral defeats in 2022, 24, 26, 28, maybe 2030, that it will not break the fever that has captured what once was a center-right party that was willing to govern. Because I don't think that single party rule is any healthier than what we have now, because then an even smaller group of people make all the decisions for everybody. And so I think that's where I see it, which is we must win this at the ballot box for the foreseeable future. Guys, 2022 is important, hugely important. It is a way station on the way to 2024. If Republicans win the House, they'll impeach Joe Biden, they'll impeach Kamala Harris. If Republicans win the Senate, Little to no legislation for the good of the country, whether or not you're a Republican, Democrat, Independent, whatever it is, will get done because it will all be about positioning the party to be able to win the White House, whether it's Donald Trump or somebody else, in November of 2024. And remember this, Maya, as much as we know that Mitch McConnell hates Donald Trump and vice versa, Mitch McConnell said, if Donald Trump runs in 2024, I'll vote for him. 
And I think that gives you a sense of just how rotten and empty that party is and why, from our perspective, they've got to be beaten and beaten and beaten again. I second that motion. All right. Maya, I want to thank you for joining me today. Everybody out there, I want to thank you for your questions. They were great as always. We love so many people taking an interest in what we're doing and the fact that you listen and watch and absorb our content. Please always feel free to share it with your friends and family and anybody think you might be interested. Maya, any upcoming dates you have to plug before we can get out of here? Yeah, well, of course, the show we're speaking is back on Wednesday. So I just want to remind people of that. We're going to be engaging in the tough conversations of saying, hey, are we going to fix this stuff or what? Are we going to get involved? Yes, we must. And then I'm actually headed to Iowa for a show and I might stop and see Chuck Grassley. So if anybody has anything they want me to say, just let me know. As an aside, can I give you a factoid about Chuck Grassley? I figured out this is not rocket science. Chuck Grassley was born in the first year of FDR's first term. So what does that mean? That means that Chuck Grassley is older than the New Deal. Think about that. Wow. It's like the old deal. He's the old deal. He is the old deal. That's a great line. All right. We're going to steal that, Maya. Thank you. <laughs> all right. And Maya, where can everybody find you on social media? Yes, I'm on all the platforms at Maya on stage. Please follow me if you would like a dose of inspiration, sometimes jokes and sometimes me just posting pictures of bubbles. Amen to that. And everybody, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. Until next time, Maya, thanks again for coming, and we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.